Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right, well, good morning, Mercy Church. It is good to be with you this morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And this morning, as we begin, I just feel led to pray over our time. Uh, I know there's a lot of us coming in with a lot of different things that are going on throughout the week. Uh, And before we get into God's word, what I want to do is I want to shower us with prayer that he would bless our time together and that we would leave this morning encouraged through what could be a hard word. So let me pray for us. God, we approach you this morning knowing that you are our good, good father. God, that you love us and that you have done everything necessary to prove that to us. Yet, God, I know that there are people coming in this morning, even myself coming in this morning with what could be a cloud over our week, disappointments, sin that has taken over. And God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would lift our eyes. Lord, lift them off of ourselves and onto you, the one who loves us and cares for us. And God, I pray that you bless our time together this morning. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bible, we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to walk through the entire chapter. And what we're going to see is the downfall of King Saul. We're going to see the downfall of King Saul. And if you were to guess, you know, the reasons for why he would be removed as king, you know, if you haven't read this passage before, I'm sure your imagination would run wild with potential things that he could have done. And what, but what we're going to see in this passage is Saul's half-hearted obedience that led to the loss of his kingdom. It was his lack of obedience that caused God to be displeased with King Saul. You know, why is that? Well, what we'll see in this passage and what we'll see throughout this scripture is that our obedience is tied to what we love. We obey what we love. It shows us where our loyalties lie. And oftentimes it makes us question, okay, do I love the things that God provides or do I love God himself? Here's the big idea for today. Half-hearted obedience reveals the conditions of our heart. Half-hearted obedience reveals the condition of our heart. And what we're going to see is God give, give Saul a clear command. And he's only gonna do it halfway and his half-hearted obedience showed what he really loved. And that was true for Saul and it's true for us. And my hope today as we look into the life of Saul is that it would serve for us as a mirror 
to look at ourselves and to look at our own hearts. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. As water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. You wanna know who you truly are? Examine your heart. Church, God is after our hearts. He is not after our religious activity. It's only when we live in full obedience that we will actually experience the joy of Christ that he has for us and that he intends for us. Now, a quick warning for this passage is the beginning of this passage and the end of this passage are pretty shocking. It's one of those, I can't believe this is in the Bible kind of moments. It's one of those that when you get scheduled to preach four months ago and then you look at the passage, you're like, oh shoot, I gotta preach that? Well, I'm gonna do my best to help us understand these moments because God put these things in here for a reason and it is for our good. So 1 Samuel 15, starting verses one and two, here's what it says. This is the word of God. Verse one, Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is God's word, he's telling him. This is what the Lord of armies says, I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Okay, so God is telling Saul, hey, I witnessed, hey, I remember what the Amalekites did to you. I remember what they did to the Israelites when I was delivering them out of slavery. Remember that in the book of Exodus? God was delivering his people from slavery out of Egypt and the Amalekites they're just, well, I'll just say it. They're just terrible. They're just terrible people. And they're the longtime enemies of God and Israel. They were renowned for their brutality and for their murder. And in Exodus 17, what we see is that they were lying in wait to ambush Israel in the wilderness. And what we see in Exodus 17 is that this is the first people group that Israel gets into a battle with. It was their first enemy and it's still their enemy till this moment. And you might remember the scene. It's the scene where Moses is holding the staff in the air. And, and while he held the staff in the air, Israel was winning the battle, right? Joshua was down there, you know, doing you know, the hard work. Uh, and Moses is up there holding the staff, you know, and then, uh, and then he'd get tired and his hands would fall and then Aaron and her would, uh, would hold his arms up. And as long as he held his arms up, Israel would win. And then we see in Deuteronomy 25, uh, verses 17 and 18, it says this about the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey as you left out of Egypt. So notice in 17, he's saying, he's telling them, Israel, hey, remember this. Remember what they did. They met you along the way and attacked all of your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. So the stragglers most likely would have been, you know, the women, the elderly, the sick, and the children. These people did not fear God. And when the Lord, your God, gives you rest from all the enemies around you in uh, the land that the Lord is giving you to possess as an inheritance, so he's like, hey, once you get to the promised land, blot out the memory of Amalek. Amalek was the king. 
blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. So he's making a promise that he is going to wipe out these people. Now the passage we're in today is hundreds of years after this battle. And what we're gonna now see is that the Amalekites are still God's enemy hundreds of years later. But remember that last part, he's making a promise to Amalek and to to God's people that he is going to punish them for how he treated Israel. God remembers his promises, even the ones that include his justice. And what they would bring to God's people, what they would do is God would ultimately promise to defend them because God does defend his children. Now, let's move on to verse three. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them, kill the men, women, infant, nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Okay, now this does seem to be a pretty clear command from Saul, but let's be honest, this is a shocking request. Is it not? This is a hard one to read. But I think it's okay for us to admit that it's a hard thing to read for us. And I think it's important for us to remember, though, the context of everything that's happened before. You know, these people are evil. And there's, it's been hundred years, hundreds of years since God said this to them. And he's been incredibly patient because they keep doing this to people over and over. They plunder all the time and God has given them plenty of time to turn from their sin, yet they have not done it. And considering what they've done to people for hundreds of years, it's also a fair question to ask, well, why didn't God stop them sooner? It's a fair question, but... When we think about this passage and we think about, oh gosh, you know, kill everything, even, even the children, you know, some of us might say, myself included, hold on, you know, they didn't do anything. Why are they getting destroyed? What's going on here? I think this is an understandable question. And while I don't have a ton of time to spend here, I'll say this, this is an example of God's justice on a group of people. As Westerners, when we think about justice, we think about it primarily through a Western individualistic worldview. Why? Because we're Westerners. But the majority of the world, especially the East, think through the world through the lens of community. Every individual is a part of a larger group and no one ever truly stands alone. No one truly ever stands apart from their group. This is very different from Western culture in parts of America. And now it is true that justice and judgment can be applied to the individual. You know, we see this, that in the scriptures, it says that when we die and when we get to heaven, you know, we won't, we will be judged by God, not as a part of a group, but we'll be judged as an individual on whether or not we believe the gospel. So the Amalekites, their former sin has now caused judgment on these people. And they've also continued in this pattern of brutality. They never turned from their their ways. Now, listen, this is a divine war. This is not something you and I could call to do. Hey, in the name of God, let's go to war against these people. We can't do that. God called this. It's important to understand that in this moment, God wasn't just having a bad day and just decided to kill a bunch of people. No, he's not temperamental like that. This was not a war of conquest. Saul was not to grow rich from the spoils of this war. This was supposed to be an instrument. 
He was supposed to be an instrument of God's justice. And this will be important as we move forward. Okay, so we just saw God's justice communally. And now it's important to see that we'll all that his blessing also works that way. Verse four, then Saul summoned the troops and counted them at Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the wadi. And he warned the Kenites. Okay, so here's some new people. The Kenites, he said, since you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, go on and leave. Get away from the Amalekites or I'll sweep you away with them. So the Kenites withdrew from the Amalekites. Smart move, <laughs> smart move. Okay, so what we're seeing here now is the kindness of God to the Kenites. Now we're seeing, now listen, that these particular Kenites, now this is a hundred, remember, their kindness was hundreds of years ago. Now, were these, were these Kenites alive when, when they showed kindness to Israel? No, but God still remembered them and he's blessing their kindness by sparing them. God is right to do both. He's right to execute justice and he's also right to extend blessing. Moses' father-in-law, if you might remember Jethro, he was from this group of people, the Kenites, and later they would play a big role in Israel and they would be incorporated into the blessing of Israel. But let's look at how Saul responded to the command of God. Verse seven, then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive. Uh-oh. That wasn't what he was supposed to do. But he completely destroyed the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. Why'd they do that? Well, it's because they were not willing to destroy them. But they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Basically, anything they didn't want they got rid of anything they wanted, they kept. Here's the first thing that I think the Lord wants us to see today is that half-hearted obedience shows what we really care about. Half-hearted obedience shows what we really care about. Saul only did part of what God asked him to do. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, maybe he didn't do all of it because he didn't want to kill all of these people. Well, not true. He did. He really did. He obeyed kind of, but he killed everyone except King Agag. He kept him alive. But he also kept the best of the sheep, goats, and animals. And what we start to see here is a glimpse of, of the heart of Saul. This isn't what God asked. God wanted justice, but this isn't what he did. He basically did to the Amalekites what the Amalekites did to them. This was vengeance. He wanted to do this. He wanted, he wanted to, to get vengeance and get back at them. And what's worse is he kept all the things, all the items of wealth. And by keeping King Agag alive, basically it was him keeping a trophy for himself. Based on the animals and King Agag, basically he had all of the ingredients for a really killer parade in his own name. But why did he do this? Why did he do it? I think the second half of verse nine says it. He said that they were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Church, we are like Saul sometimes. 
We obey God as long as it serves us. You know, we're selfish like that. We obey until it bumps up against what we really want to do. You know, think about even this one, God's command to Israel to tithe, to give a tenth of their offerings and, and their sacrifices. You know, imagine how hard that would have been for a farmer. Imagine how hard that would have been in an agrarian society. How tempting would it have been for them to sacrifice the lame or the deformed animal? Because the really nice animal, the spotless animal would have cost a lot of money. And when it came time for Saul to destroy everything, he just wasn't willing to do it. He wasn't willing to destroy the things of value and the things that would have given him status. But he did destroy things that were worthless and unwanted. Do you see what he did? He started to draw boundary lines around his obedience. In church, we do this. You know what, God, I'll obey you and I'll do everything you say, God, I love you but I'm not willing to give you that. I'm not willing to give you my sex life. I'm not willing to give you and let you make the call on my career or where I live. I'm not willing to trust you with my kids or the degree that I choose. God, you can have everything else, just not this. Our half-hearted obedience shows us what we really care about. It always does. Half-hearted obedience is evidence that we serve, at times, another God. Saul wasn't serving God. He was serving himself and he was serving his pride. He wanted to build his own kingdom apart from God. And oftentimes we do the same. And I think it's a good question for us to ask, like, why do we do this? Like, why do we keep, like, y'all know that, why do we keep doing this? Why do we obey half-heartedly? Why such a tug of war for our hearts? Why do we live for ourselves in this way? Well, it's because we've been blinded by selfish desire. We've been blinded. We, the lie that we believe is that we can find satisfaction outside of God. Even though he's the one who designed us, who created us a certain way, who created this world for us to enjoy. And there's this lie that we believe that we can find satisfaction outside of him. And when you quit seeking satisfaction from God, your, start, your heart starts to turn to other things. James talks about this in James 3.16. It says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. When you think about yourself all the time and seek to find satisfaction in this world in every place but in God, the one who created you and love you, it will lead to your ruin. It always does. And not only that, it shows us our pride, which is the second point for us today. Half-hearted obedience is evidence of pride. It's evidence of pride. Now, what does pride do? Pride blinds us. Walking in pride is basically the equivalent of spiritual drunkenness. You can't see, you make foolish decisions. And here's the worst part. The worst part is that in the moment when you're walking spiritually drunk in pride, you think that all the decisions that you are currently making in that moment is the right decision. You can't see. You're deceived and you're blind and you don't even know it. 
And when your friends and loved ones come to you, you refuse to listen to those who aren't spiritually blind. You know, this is what happens with Saul. Look at a verse 10 through 15. It shows exactly what I just said. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel and God said, I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. Now, when he says, I regret that I made King Saul, so he, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that I wish I would have made a different choice. He's not saying that. What he's doing is he's speaking in almost like human emotions. He's saying like he's grieved over Saul, right? God is outside of time. He's sovereign. He sees all these things together. He's not saying, oh shoot, I made the wrong decision. He's saying that he is grieved over this. So Samuel became very angry and cried out to the Lord all night. That's what Saul should have been doing. But Samuel was doing that. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul. So he went to confront Saul. But guess what? Saul went to Carmel and he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went to Gilgal. And when Samuel came to him, Saul, like you imagine this picture, you know, Samuel coming up and he's like, he's brokenhearted and he's coming up and he's going to confront Saul. And then you see Saul, he said, may the Lord bless you, Samuel, for I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Look, we did it. And Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep and goats and cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, oh, uh, uh, the troops brought them. The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle. But it's okay. It's okay, Samuel. We did it in order to offer a sacrifice to your God. Notice he said, you, you're not our. But it's okay. The rest we destroyed. This man's pride has blinded him. And it's caused a lack of awareness. His lack of awareness to what he has done is shocking. Look at what he did. He plundered the Amalekites and he built a statue for himself. Instead of building an Ebenezer to God, like we've been seeing in 1 Samuel, he basically built an Ebenezer in his own name so that he could be remembered. In his own honor, he, you know, he did this and he had the audacity then to tell Samuel that he carried out the Lord's instructions. Like, bruh, no, you didn't. No, you didn't, not even close. And he's completely blind and deluded into thinking that he obeyed rightly. And this is such a scary reality. Like Saul, many of us have deceived ourselves into thinking that we are okay when we are not. And like Saul, when our brother or our sister calls us out in sin, we deflect and we can make excuses. Samuel called him out on it and he immediately deflected responsibility. He blamed it on the troops. I mean, this is King Saul. He's ahead above everybody. Tall, dark, and handsome. He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants. He had all the power in the world and he blame shifted. He deceived himself and he couldn't see the spiritual reality of what was happening right in front of him, even though it was staring him right in the face. And when faced with the reality of his disobedience, he blamed other people. You know, we even see this in Jesus's ministry, how pride can make people spiritually blind to the spiritual reality of what's happening right in front of them. 
You know, if you will turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter eight. So turn over there, let me hear them pages turning. Mark chapter eight. And here's what we see in Mark chapter eight. After Jesus fed 5,000 people, the disciples started to grumble. They started to complain. And they were worrying about where their next meal was gonna come, come from because they misplaced some leftover bread. And here's what Jesus said in verse 17. Aware of this, he said to them, and here's Jesus. Jesus is kind but firm rebuke. Here's what he said. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, or don't you understand or comprehend? Have you hardened hearts? I put this in bold for you, I think, did I? Well, it's bold on my manuscript. It says in verse 18, don't you have eyes or do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Like, can't you see, can't you hear? Don't you see what's going on? And do you not remember what we just did when I broke the five loaves the five, for 5,000 people? And how many baskets did I have left over for you to collect? 12, they told him. Y'all, just a few hours ago, they helped distribute food for 5,000 people over that. And they've already forgotten and they're already arguing about where their next meal is gonna come from when Jesus, the one who provided it, is sitting in the boat with them. They're completely blind spiritually to what is staring at them right in the face. And Jesus is saying, hey, don't you have eyes to see? Aren't you like your hard hearts and your pride has blinded you? Church, don't let this wash over you. Many of us, many of us are blinded and many of us choose to be blind. We've hardened our hearts so much. We want to do what we want to do so badly that we have chosen to ignore the warnings of the Lord. And the more we live in half-hearted obedience, the more we will try and seek satisfaction in other things apart from God. And then when those things don't satisfy, because they won't, because you were only made to be satisfied by God. And when those things don't satisfy, you start to experience the results of seeking satisfaction apart from God. And then what happens is then when we feel distant, we tend to blame God for that. Even though we've been following our own way. And then when we feel distant, then we blame God for it. And the true reality is that his love for you has never changed. Not for one second, you can measure God's love for you in the gospel. The lengths that he went to save you. It's amazing what he went through to save us. And some of you, I know that you're struggling. I know you're sitting here this morning and you know that you're living in half-hearted obedience and your eyes are now being opened to this. And you might be asking, how Lord, how can I even turn? How can I even do this? And if that's you, I want you to hold on just for a moment because I think there's still some more work to be done in our hearts. And then we'll talk through how we can turn together. And we see in verse 16, we see Samuel. You know, Samuel's had enough at this point of Saul's deflection and his pride. In verse 16, he says, stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Oh, tell me, he replied. And Samuel continued, 
although you were once considered, or although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? Remember last week, you know, like he was, he was anointed as king and then they couldn't even find him because he was hiding because he was so scared. Remember that? Oh man, how it's changed. From being fearful to prideful. Haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight them until you've annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what is evil in the Lord's sight? And then Saul answered, gosh, verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me and I brought back King Agag of Amalek and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And again, the troops, the troops took the sheep and the goats and the cattle for the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction. But we did it to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Whenever we are confronted with our sin, we have a decision to make in that moment. Self-deception or repentance. That's what can happen. We can continue to deceive ourselves, to choose that, to darken and close our eyes. We can blame shift, we can hide, we can rationalize. We can continue to living in this lie and choosing to live a life of, false, of a false sense of security that no, I'm actually okay with God. When in reality, you're in rebellion. And right here, Saul made his choice. You know, he dug his heels in and he even wanted to use the animals from his plunder to then go sacrifice them to God as if God would accept this, as if God doesn't see what he did. He's still being prideful and, he's, and he wants to use his plunder as an offering to God. Wow. Then Samuel said, verse 22, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord. This is maybe the most important part of our passage today. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? Look, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention to, to what? To the commands of God is better than the fat of rams. Listen, church, God wants obedient devotion, not religious cover-up. He wants obedient devotion, not religious cover-up. That's what Saul wanted to do. He just wanted to make a sacrifice to cover it up. This is huge. At some point in the culture of Israel, they begin to say, ah, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. I'm just gonna go ahead and sin. I'm gonna go and have my fun. But it's all good because guess what? Y'all, we can just go and make a sacrifice to God and then you'll just forgive me. Why? Because he has to. I've done this before, haven't you? I'm just gonna choose disobedience and then, but it's okay, I'm just gonna pray a prayer later for forgiveness because after all, God is forgiving. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? He has to forgive me. Church, I've done this many times and what it revealed about me and what it might reveal about you is that God wasn't Lord of my life. And not only that, he wasn't the love of my life. What we choose to obey shows what we really love. 
Samuel is telling Saul that God doesn't really care about your religious sacrifices and your burnt offerings, especially if your religious activity, for us the equivalent, your church attendance, your small group attendance, all the outward things that we do to show that we're actually okay with God, he doesn't care about those things if your heart isn't right. God cares about your obedience because what it does is it shows what you really love and God is after your heart. He's not after your religious activity. He's not, a, he's not after your lip service. He's after your heart loving him. This idea, church, changed my life. I lived personally in half-hearted obedience for many, many years of my life. And what it came down to is that I hated that God would actually ask me to live a certain kind of way. Jesus, I love you and all, but just don't ask me to live. Just don't tell me what to do. And what's crazy is that obedience to God sounded like a legalistic idea. Like, what do you mean obey? That's legalistic. Don't tell me to actually do things, God. This is what I'm just here to love you. Don't ask me to do anything. Isn't the gospel about grace? It's not about obedience. The gospel is about grace. You just forgive me all the time. And then one day I was reading through the book of John and I read something that changed my life. And to this day, if you personally know me and we're friends, you know that this is my favorite passage. Flip over with me to John, um, John chapter 15. It says this in verse nine, it says, as the father loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And I was like, yes, that's it. I'll do that, Lord. I will remain in your love for me. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, then you will remain in my love. Okay, uh-uh, hold on. Just as I has kept my father's commands and remain in his love. That sounds kind of conditional, doesn't it? Verse 11, and I've told you these things that, so that you may have joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So I was like, wait a minute, if I keep Christ's commands, then I'll remain in God's love. That sounds conditional. And it sounds like the exact opposite of Ephesians 2, which says that I'm saved by grace and not by works. What's going on here? Well, in the context of John 14 through 17, Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples. He's given, listen, he's about to go die the next morning and he's about to go to the cross and he's giving them their last instructions. And he's telling them all that they need to know before he dies. And he goes on to tell them that he will depart from them, but it's okay. He's gonna send them a counselor, the Holy Spirit, and that he would never leave them as orphans. And then I read John 15, 11 in a new way. And this is my favorite verse. These things I've told you, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Church, look at it. It's my favorite verse. 
It's my favorite verse and I'll never stop talking about this verse for the rest of my life. What Jesus is telling us here and he's telling the disciples that the things that, is, that he's telling them is gonna lead to, to their joy and their joy would be complete. He's telling them to key the key to the joy of Christian life. All of us ask this question, how do I find joy in the Christian life? How can I find happiness? When we obey Jesus and are devoted to him, he gives us joy. He's not saying that if you obey, then you'll be on my good side. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, children, I want you to walk in joy. That's the key. When you obey, I'm gonna give you joy. He did not have to do that. He could have just said, obey me because I'm God. And I order you to do it. But he said, no, 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 no. When you obey, oh, I'm gonna give you joy. I'm gonna give you joy. And he wants you to walk in joy. What a kindness, what an extravagant blessing. He could have again just said, I'm God, do it. But no, he was showing them that obedience is the thing that's going to lead them to the greatest amount of joy that they could ever experience in life. And that the Holy Spirit would come and would help them to obey. This changed my life. The fact that God wanted me to be joyful blew my mind. So here's what I did. I started to obey God in everything. And you know what I found out? He wasn't trying to steal my joy. His obedience and his commands, you know, he wasn't trying to be a wet blanket just to kill my fun. No, he gave me these boundaries so that I could experience joy and to protect me from things that would harm me. Prior to learning this, I saw very little fruit in my life. You know, I started, but here's what I did. I started to tell people about Jesus. I started to pray. I started to spend time in God's word. And then when I started to do those things, I had the eyes to see. And oh my gosh, God's doing things around me. Everywhere. And y'all, it's not because I'm awesome. Ask my friends, I'm kind of an idiot. It's true. But I learned one of the reasons I was so dissatisfied in life is because I couldn't see God and his activity anywhere in my life. And the reason that was true is because I didn't obey him. I didn't do the things that he, he, he wanted me to do. God was after my heart and all I gave him was my religious cover-up, my church attendance and my, my Bible studies and, and all the lip service to seem like I'm doing well when I was a train wreck. And this warning this morning to you is not because I'm frustrated or angry with you. It's not God being frustrated or angry. He wants you to experience joy. But here's the thing. Some of you think that you are fooling God and you're not. Saul thought he could just offer some sacrifices and take advantage of God's grace. And some of you think you can do the same. You need to hear that obedience to Jesus is better than your confession after your sin. It is. You can't take advantage of him. He sees you. Who are we fooling? He spoke the stars into existence and we think we can just hide? No, he sees you and he loves you anyway. 
But also I think this is the passage for Christians who are fighting to obey God. You're fighting day in and day out to be obedient. You're fighting that sin. You've got this depression, this anxiety. You've got a person that's hurt you and you're trying to forgive them. You're trying to figure it out, but you keep failing. I need you to hear this. God is pleased with you. Your fight against sin is evidence of your obedience. It's evidence that God is with you. God is pleased with you. And I want you to be free this morning. Listen to this. As a believer in Christ, when you meet Jesus one day in glory, after you pass away, you will not be judged by your, by the perfection of your obedience. You're going to be judged by the perfection of Christ's obedience in your place. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews quotes Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 10 and then quotes 1 Samuel here and he's applying it to Jesus. Jesus obeyed, then he sacrificed himself on top of that. To obey is better than sacrifice, this passage says. And guess what? Jesus did both. He obeyed perfectly and he sacrificed himself perfectly on the cross in your place. His obedience earned your acceptance before God. All you have to do is receive it. But Saul refused and Samuel continued to show him the error of his ways. Verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of divination. Uh Uh-oh. And defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Y'all, this is a tough word. Basically, he told Saul that his rebellion was worse than witchcraft. Whoops. That's what divination means. And what's wild is is historians will say uh, that Saul was known for being tough, really tough on witches in his day. Uh, He would go out, he would find them and he would kill them. The Amalekites were actually known for summoning evil spirits um, to help them in battle. And oftentimes they would kill animals and, and, pour, and drink their blood and, 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 and would put the skin over themselves and, and would, 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 would go after evil spirits to help them in battle. So basically what Samuel is saying here, the ultimate roast, is that your half-hearted obedience is worse than the, than the Amalekite sin that God sent Saul to go to judge them for. Oof. And because of his half-hearted obedience, he was rejected as king. 24, and and Saul, uh, Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned and I have transgressed against the Lord, uh, against the Lord's command and your words. He should have just stopped here, right? Like I've transgressed, I've sinned against God and your words, but he didn't. He kept going. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Y'all, this is an excuse. He doesn't have anyone to fear. He's the king. Whatever he says goes. Y'all, this is a terrible apology. This is basically the equivalent. I mean, have you ever had anybody apologize to you and say, gosh, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, I just really want to come and just tell you how sorry I am. I really sinned against you. But the reason I did it was because you were a jerk to me. and, And it basically ruins the apology, right? It ruins the apology every time. And that's what he's doing. 25, now therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so that I can worship the Lord. And Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. 
And when Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today. And he's given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Ouch. Furthermore, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he is not man who changes his mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders. Honor me. He still wants to be honored. Honor me before the elders and in front of my people before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship before the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back following Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Here's the last thing we'll see today is that God sees through half-hearted repentance. So fully surrender. Even after all this, Saul was holding on to his pride. Verse 30 shows us that he still wants Samuel to honor him in front of the people. And what's even worse than that is, is and it's, it's unspoken here, but it's so clear that he wants Samuel to come with him to offer this sacrifice. He's attempting to by Samuel's presence to get Samuel to put a stamp of approval on what he wanted to do. It seems like he could be repenting here, but he's not. Saul would continue to live like this. He continues to live in his pride and God took this kingdom away from him. What first Samuel is doing here is it's starting to set up a juxtaposition between Saul and King David. Was David perfect? No, far from it. But the difference between Saul and David is that David repented well. David was a murderer and he was an adulterer, but he was quick to repent to God and God called him a man after his own heart because of it. And we can choose the path of Saul or David. And this passage ends pretty graphically. Verse 32, bring me King Agag of Amalek and Agag came trembling because he thought, oh, certainly the bitterness of death has come. And Samuel declared, as, the sword, as your sword made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his, uh, to his home in, in Gibeah of Saul. And even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. And Samuel mourned over Saul, regretted, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king of Israel. Samuel finished what Saul should have done from the beginning. Samuel mourned over Saul. And this is a sobering reminder of what half-hearted obedience means about our hearts. We can half-heartedly obey and blind ourselves to the reality of our sin. But the really encouraging thing is, is that God is not after our devotion. He is after our hearts. And our hearts can only be changed by the gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are after our hearts. Lord, you're not after our religious activities. And Lord, we're thankful for the gospel that tells us that we could never do this perfectly. We could never earn your grace. We could never earn any of it. But Jesus, you were the one who did. Jesus, you obeyed perfectly in our place, as our representative. And now God help us to obey, not to earn your favor, 
but help us to obey because we know we have your favor. We obey just because we love you. And because by your grace, we find joy in obeying the things that you want us to do. God, for those of us this morning that have been deceiving themselves into thinking that they are right with you, Lord, I pray for them now. Even though they may not know how to get out of their mess, Lord, I know that you are not asking them to fix themselves up before they come to you, Lord. You want to meet them where they are right now. No more sacrifices. No more quick prayers asking for forgiveness. God, may we turn now. Help us to turn to you, the one who loved us, the one who saved us, the one who brings us with you one day in glory. God, we love you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.